Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host Lois Drachen as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things disability. I'm your host, Lois Drachen, and today I have the honor of chatting to someone who is Wow, she is such an inspiration and such a an influencer within the disability sector here in Southern Africa, Lydia Pretorius. Lydia, thank you so much for chatting to us today. It has been a long time, but I've been wanting to have you on the podcast, and it's really great to have you with us today. Thank you, Lois. Um, it's really an honor being here. You do such tremendous and amazing work. Um, sharing experiences and so thank you thank you for including me well thank you for that very kind comment it's always great to hear that the the work that I'm doing is is appreciated so Lydia maybe let's dive straight into this conversation and ask you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how you became involved in the disability space you know I get asked this quite often because people would say to me, but you, you're not disabled. Why, you know, is your life consumed by disability? And my first answer usually is, well, how do you know I don't have a disability? Because I think it's one of those things that uh, we tend to think of the visible disability. But yes, as far as I know, I don't have a disability yet. Um, and I say that with fairly quick confidence in that I have not got the lived experience of persons with disability, but I've intersected with it. Where did it come from? Um, I think I was born a social justice activist. Uh, so it it was not really life that shaped me into this. It was more me seeking it out. Um, and I say this partly because I can remember the first books I read, the ones that I really loved and read and read and read over and over again, had a disability aspect to it. Um, My best friend at Crest had a disability. My best friends at school in grade one, the ones I seeked out, was they were either other or they had dyslexia or the ones stuttered very severely. So I also always seeked out people who... I felt needed solidarity um, without really understanding it. Um, I was born, by the way, with extra toes and fingers, and I've got webbed toes. But I don't think, in all honesty, that that really impacted my moving into the disability space at all. So, yes, there was a bit of othering. Um, I was for years the only kid in the school wearing shoes, and we all went barefoot to school except me. Um, and I didn't have girl shoes on. I had little boots on because um, it was special orthopedic boots. Um, but I don't think that's really what brought me to, into the space. Um, one of the ways when I had to choose a career was around 
what would really give me purpose. And, and occupational theory was kind of a logical stepping into that space. Um, and then I discovered I didn't really like sick people. Um, I didn't really want to work with sick people. But disabled people are not sick people. So it was a, a, a natural sort of movement into working with disabled people, but outside of the acute rehab context. Um, and I acutely remember, and I think this really was for me a, a, a turning point, working at Kalafung Hospital in the mid-1980s, I worked in the spinal unit, and I kept saying to my patients, I'm doing something really wrong here. I don't think we really are thing. Go home, discover what I'm doing wrong, and then please come and tell me what we need to change here so that the bubble we build for you in the hospital extends to also your lived experience outside the hospital. And one person came back to me and he said to me, I don't know what you're doing wrong, but yes, you are doing something wrong. But I do know where you can get the answers. And he gave me a pamphlet for a Disabled People South Africa Congress that was coming up. Uh, I think it was 1988, 90, no, 87, 1986 or 87. He gave me a pamphlet and flew down to Cape Town, and that was it. Um, I discovered what. I was doing wrong and what I was doing wrong had everything to do with not recognizing and mediating power imbalances, privilege imbalances, although that word came into my vocabulary much later. Uh, but that really, I think, is what brought me into the disability space. Once I understood the social injustice, the, 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 the responsibility of society to correct its wrong. Um, that really shaped my space moving into the disability and the perspective with which I, I came in. So, so, yeah, I think that really is what brought me to this your, space. Your journey from there has involved a number of different initiatives, projects, roles. Just give us a snapshot of some of the roles that you have works in relating to your disability social justice work? I was privileged enough, um, and I thank God every day for this, that I was born when I was born, so that I could, as an adult, a young adult, uh, experience and be part of South Africa's transition to democracy. And for me, Having been part of the disability rights movement in sort of the late 80s, trans moving into the early 90s and um, all the discussions and, and, and minds meeting and people meeting each other across color lines and political lines and things, as we started to shape the thinking for South Africa, I think my first real highlight there was the disability rights charter process, which took us to villages in all nine provinces um, it took, uh, took us across all the different impairment groups, so not all of them, but we thought all of them at the time, um, really listening to what the hopes and aspirations for people with disabilities were. And that thing took us into 1994 
And I then helped to establish the disability program and the presidency in 1995. I came in as a technical support for Maria Ranto and then when she went to parliament for Shoei Chokland. Um, and in establishing the, the architecture for disability in the new South Africa. And we could then take that disability rights charter, which was the direct hopes and aspirations expressed by persons with disabilities into policy. And what we basically did, did is we took all the notes that we took during that process and we married that with the then standard rules on the equalization of opportunities for persons with disabilities. It was a UN document that the apartheid government saw as a communist sort of document. So it was never popularized. It was never used in South Africa. And it enabled us to take international thinking and marry it with the lived experiences of people across the diversity spectrum in South Africa. So the INDS, the Integrated National Disability Strategy, will always um, be one of my highlights because of how it came to be. Um, uh, and I was sort of in and out of government then. And I, then after that, I was, and, and people say to me, I sort of left disability for 11 years. And I'm like, no, I was mainstream. I went back into the society components, moved out of direct disability, uh, work and I dabbled with politics a bit. I was a deputy mayor, I was a chief of staff, but it gave me the opportunity to understand why so little happens from the mainstream perspective. What is it in the busyness of the agenda of mainstream that holds them back from including persons with disabilities? And it really gave me some very invaluable insights into that aspect. And I then came back into disability. Um, and I think my highlights in my last sort of 10 years in government was really getting the second um, policy um, on the table, the updating of the INDS, and really, again, at that point, being able to bring on board the um, thinking around intersectionality. And I remember the first times we raised these words, everybody was telling us, They've never heard these words. They don't know what it is. Um, but the importance that diversity is not just impairment types, but it is all the intersectionalities within the diversity of, of the community. So for me, that was really um, a highlight. And I know these are both policies, and I have stepped out of policy because I said I'm tired of paper that doesn't actually get implemented. So I left government because I got tired of window dressing. Um, and I was making curtains for windows that have long been stolen. Um, so at that point, I had to decide in 2020, what do I do out of government? And in that process, I really stepped into the space of more inclusion work, um, also looking at inclusion from the society perspective, but then went also back to my initial in terms of how do I create more power balance by empowering people with disabilities themselves to address the internalized ableism that they've taken on because of what society throws at them. And that's why I went into coaching. So my last two years has really been spent in that space. And I think my absolute highlight in that, if I 
and choose one would be coaching a group of young women with disabilities across Africa, um, 16 different women, 16 different countries, different impairments, um, different intersectionalities, and coaching them on an eight-month leadership program um, to try and accelerate their journey as activists and as young women um, leaders with disabilities. So that for me has been an absolute highlight. What I find so fascinating, just listening to you sharing some of your experiences and some of your roles, is the different perspectives, the different insights, the different approaches that you bring to the work that you're doing. Understanding it from government side, from policy side, from the human experience side, the advocacy side, the activism side, and everything plays together into the work that you're doing now. But I'm curious about the way that the work that you've done has really shifted your perspectives, your thinking on the question of disability and inclusion. You've mentioned intersectionality, which is one of the words I'm hearing increasingly, not just in the disability context, but beyond that as well. But let's dig a little bit deeper into some of those aspects about what caused the shift in your perspective. Uh, Lois, you know, I, as I said, I was incredibly lucky in when I was born and, and having been able to be at the, in the heart of the transition in South Africa. But the process that led me there, I think really what caused me, what created the understanding and my approach. Having become part of the disability rights movement in the um, sort of late 80s, in a rural context. Now, at that point, people with disabilities that lived in rural areas were very much left on their own um, because all the organizations were urban-based. And they had no, you must remember, these are the days before social media and internet and mobile phones and what have you. It was just too difficult for organizations to reach out and sustain support for rural organizations of disabled people. And we managed to get it um, going by reaching out to a few, one or two organizations that have managed to establish themselves and by bringing sort of the empowerment component to them and helping them to just forge ahead. And that built the rural movement. But what it taught me was the intersectionality of it all, that how different your lived experience is depending on where you live, depending on your race, depending on your gender, depending on your age, depending on your socioeconomic status. So I think the opportunity I had to work in different contexts, but above all, to be able to sit at crossroads under trees and listening to people with disabilities, actively changing my perspective. I always used to say what I learned was that I bring knowledge. Knowledge I gained at university and knowledge that I gained in life to that conversation. That knowledge is worth absolutely nothing without it being married and brought together and intersectioned with the lived experience, which is their knowledge. And the two coming together 
and a mutual um, uh, wisdom coming out of that is really where the expertise lies. And I was fortunate enough to be taught this by amazing mentors like Friday Mabuso and Jerry and Katie and Mike Toy and Maria Rando, that your role is to listen. Your role is to share ideas, throw it, and it will find it's it it will it will germinate when the time is ready with whoever is ready for it. You just share it. Um, and I think for me, that experience of working as a therapist, a white therapist alone in a rural community, communities, um, really being at loss of how to find my feet. All I had was my professional jacket uh, um, and, and being forced to the table in humbleness, listening to the wisdoms, the lived experiences, the solutions that persons with disabilities, that mothers of children with disabilities had to offer is really what shaped my thinking. They taught me about intersectionality. They taught me about privilege. And that privilege is something not to be ashamed of, but to treasure, because our role is to repurpose privilege. Um, they taught me that nothing about us without us is not just about creating more seats around the table, but it often is leaving my seat and leaving the room to give that seat to a rights holder. Um, so I, I do it. I think there's a few things that make me as happy as a person with a disability saying to me, I'm ready, you can leave the room, I want your seat. I, I There's nothing that gives me as much joy as handing that seat over um, because that is what it's all about. It's really around uh, affirming, creating space, empowering, and 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 trusting the process. Um, and that for me is around repurposing um, my privilege. So for me, it's always been around that. Um, what I later on learned, and this is my current journey, is as I move beyond trying to get wheelchairs, uh, orientation mobility training, you know, the practical things, and I move beyond that and, and we connect it at human level. What I also learned through those years is the importance of making sure that we also focus on how do we give disabled people the agency so that intimacy and joy, life purpose and dignity without having to fight for it, without having to plan for it, without having to constantly maneuver for it. Um, because ultimately that's what we are put on earth for as any human being is to have purpose and to live a joyful life um, because that would then transcend into a better world. Um, and this is what they taught me is that it's great giving me a wheelchair, but that doesn't really change my levels of joy necessarily, but acknowledging me as a human being by enabling me to express myself and to find purpose and without having to struggle for it, that's what brings me my joy. And it's about how do we give equal attention to both of those sides. So that's really what disabled people have taught me. It's something interesting there about 
the types of barriers that as a person with a disability or we as the disabled community that we experience. It's the physical barriers. Do we have access to screen reading mm-hmm. software? Do we have access to wheelchairs? Do we have access to the tools that we need? But then also transcending the attitudinal barriers that society kind of says, oh, you have a disability, that means you are less than, which is not true, but it's so institutionalized. It's so much part of the societal messages that that concept of active listening, of acknowledging that we are all whole people with skills, with knowledge, with experiences, with capacity, with abilities, is fundamental to human dignity and human rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, those societal attitudes often get internalized and we start believing believing that we that we have no right we don't even think of our right to intimacy and to joy and to and to dignity because it's just constantly being attacked um so absolutely you know and and i think it's it's around how do we build our systems that unleash that and not suppress that the the other phrase that you you mentioned that really resonated with me is internalized ableism. How Mm -hmm. strong those social attitudinal barriers are that we as a community start believing in them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the the hardest things for us to break down, I think, as a community Mm -hmm. who has been othered and marginalized by society for so long. Yeah. And you know, we we tend to um, get the trigger and then we fall into the traps. And if I can use a simple example of how often do job seekers with disabilities, either when they are in interviewing or when they actually get the job and they arrive at work and they have their first interview with their supervisor, how often do they fall in the trap of the first question that's asked from them is, what reasonable accommodation needs do you have? And the entire conversation for the rest of their career in that space is about reasonable accommodation. Whereas if they did not have a disability, the conversation would have been, what are you absolutely brilliant at? How do we help you to bring that brilliance out? And that person with non-disabled person's entire career is in that space of how do we unleash your brilliance? And reasonable accommodation Absolutely essential, but it should not be the center of the conversation. The center of the conversation should be my brilliance and how I unleash it. And one of the ways in which I can bring it to the table is through reasonable accommodation. But we fall into the trap of allowing um, that ableism to flip the script on our careers and our potential and, and our journey. Because we have to fight so hard for it. I love that example. It, it, it just so summarizes so many different things, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to move on to something that I've seen you commenting about a lot on social media, and it's a conversation that I haven't really had the opportunity to go into on the podcast, that of allyship. And just as an introduction for people who aren't familiar with the concept of what it means to be an ally, 
what is allyship and, and how is that formed part of your way of working? You know, allyship, the word, came to me quite recently. Um, I've always seen myself as an activist and kind of thought that that's the be-all and end-all. And then as I moved more into the space of coaching and of DEI, and disability, diversity, employment, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the word allyship kept showing up. And I think it is a word that is kind of gaining popularity, or maybe it is that I moved into that space. You know, you will say there's never, you, you can say there's not, there are no brown cards, and then somebody brings it to your attention, there is, and suddenly there are 20 brown cards. <laughs> yes. You. So it might have just moved into my space. I acknowledge that. But Sometimes it's easier to define what something is not. So allyship has almost achieved to get itself into the bad, into the bad space. And it's because of what we call performative allyship. So what allyship is not, what accountable allyship is not, is where I speak up around, in this case, the rights of persons with disabilities, but I am as guilty as anybody else of blocking disabled people, of not making my things accessible, of taking their seat when they should be speaking for themselves, of gaslighting them. Um, in other words, uh, kind of putting them in the spotlight when they didn't ask to be in the spotlight. That's not allyship. Just speaking up about disability. We call it performative allyship for me. The, the, the synonym is hashtag um, allyship. In other words, what you have is Employers all say, we are for the rights of persons with disabilities. We support employment of persons with disabilities. And hashtag, hashtag, hashtag goes out. And yet, they do not employ people with disabilities. And if they do, only as learners in learnership or entry-level positions. And then they have a million excuses. That is performative allyship. Real accountable allyship is that, firstly, I do not take the space of a person with disability in this instance if my allyship is in that space. I make sure that I listen to what the issues are, what their lived experiences are, to enable me to speak up, speak out when I see discrimination happening, when I see microaggressions happening, where I see something as inaccessible, regardless of the, whether there is somebody that requires it to be accessible. So I think for me, allyship is, is really being proactive in a space. Um, it is about not allowing, not compartmentalizing rights. And if I can give an example here, um, there might be no disabled person in the room or a person that has declared disability, disclosed that they have a disability. But there's a misogynist conversation going on. As an ally of a person with a disability, which is a rights ally, I cannot allow for isms to happen in that space because tomorrow it would be a disabled person that would become the victim of that um, isms taking place. So allyship really for me in short is stepping up when I need to step up, proactively stepping out to create an environment that becomes inclusive. 
and then listening to the voices and then creating space. And allyship means giving my seat up and moving out to the person that I say I'm in allyship with um, and not gaslighting them. And I think that gaslighting is really something that I am currently consciously trying to practice where I don't just move into a room and I actually, I used to say to a person in the, like I can see it as a visible disability, would you mind sharing your story? Would you mind expressing what do you think about it? Without the permission, without having checked with them if it is okay. Um, so so for me, that's where allyship lies, is really having that sensitivity, having that awareness, being proactive, um, being willing to be called out, not just willing, asking to be called out. And and I think my political background really helped me here because the organization I belonged to really focused on criticism and self-criticism as a practice for empowerment. Um, and so I, got, I constantly and consciously ask disabled people if I commit microaggression, if I use ableist language, if I post inaccessible social media posting, call me out and call me out publicly because I did it in a public space. Because you calling me out will also become an educative tool because we have a shared um, purpose in this space. So that for me is what allyship really what, is about. What I'm hearing a lot as you're chatting and as you're you know, sharing some of your insights and, and your, your values around inclusion and advocacy, I'm hearing a lot of giving agency, mm -hmm. more than just empowering, but actually giving agency mm -hmm. for people to advocate and be active on their own behalf. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, that I keep coming back to is the shift that I'm noticing in the sector of the nothing without us, nothing about us without us, shifting to the even shorter nothing without us because everything mm -hmm. is about us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are part of society in every facet of society. So there's no nothing about us at all because we should yes. be part of everything and that, yes. that keeps coming up for me as a as a, a strong almost summary of, of what I'm hearing but I, I really love the, the, the fact of the yes you can be an ally and be an activist but at the same time there is the risk of speaking on behalf of or acting on behalf of instead of giving agency to. Absolutely. You know, I've, 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 I'm currently in a sort of phase where I'm playing around and, and, and playing mind games around. And, and in short, it is that I'm a disability rights, um, I'm a disability rights ally but I'm a disability inclusion activist. And the reason I distinguish between this, and this is a journey, so it might change, is that in terms of disability rights, I do not have a disability. I'm an ally. 
In terms of disability inclusion, inclusion has two aspects. It has society, and it has persons with disabilities in that society. I'm part of that society. So I am there in that space. I'm an activist. Because I'm not an ally of it, because I can't be an ally of myself. Yes. Um, so, so, so for me, this is how I'm starting to distinguish between the two, and and just to link up with this notion that I also have around proactivism. And I want to give you a very simple example. It's a, it's a test that I do, and unfortunately, there's not much movement. The the, the needle is not moving. I've been checking with people over the last four or five years, any audience that I have uh, of disability rights activists or allies. Uh, so it's people working in the disability inclusion space and the disability space, um, disabled people themselves, parents of, persons of children with disabilities. And I would say to them, as a grandmother of a child with a disability, as a sister or a brother, as a, 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 a co-worker, of a person with disability, advocating in this space. When your child or your grandchild is ready to go to school, your non-disabled child or grandchild is ready to go to school and you're starting to look for school, how many of you have added a critical value that you will be using to look at which school is most suitable? that inclusion and disability inclusion in particular must be a value of that school. And that you can go to a school and say, ask the question, what is your uh, take on including children with disabilities in the school? And if they say no and they come up with the usual excuses that you are able to turn around and say, then this school is not the school for my non-disabled child because I want my child to be growing up in a diverse environment. And nobody, and I would say, rise. if any of you in choosing your non-disabled child school has placed disability inclusion as one of the values you want the school to have before you choose it. And you, you should see the unease in that room. And, and that for me is allyship. It is when it doesn't matter, I still speak up. Because that's where we change the needle. There's now a demand. And I'm saying to you, you don't get my money as a parent because you are discriminating. Not because I have a disabled child, but just because this is what is the right thing to do. So that by the time the parent goes to that school who has a disabled child, he has more agency. He has more agency because there's a, there's a receiving environment that has that's been created for us. So absolutely around agency. What I often would do is I would say to people before they go into a difficult process where they would often say to me, I, I, I don't have the knowledge to do that. Can you go and do it for me? Or can you come with me? And I would say, no, we will do a preparatory session to give you the confidence to go and share your wisdom because the wisdom is yours, it's not mine. And that really is around how do we create a supportive environment for agency without taking agency it's you know again what i what i'm hearing is it's inclusion not only when it's directly relevant mm -hmm. and immediate but inclusion at all times especially when it is not at an absolute 
sort of burning point, especially then. Um, that that because that's what's going to create the demand. If if I demand inclusion because I uh, I have to be included at that point, it's a favor I'm asking. It is a demand. It is a it's a need I'm expressing. Whereas if that is being demanded outside my space, it is the it is a it demand I'm creating. It, it, it that is what changes society. And that's part of where I'm playing is how do we create that demand? And part of it is I actually would book guest houses, not having any wish to go to the guest house, not any planned travel, but I would book. And when it comes to payment, I would say, oh, by the way, are you disability accessible? And they would say to me, um, not really. And I would, well, then I'm not interested in staying in your place. Oh, do you have a disability? No, I don't. But it's important to me, and therefore I will not stay at your place. That they can feel they're losing business. Not my business as a disabled person, my business as an ally of people with disabilities. And that's how we will start changing, using our privilege and repurposing that as able non-disabled person. What advice would you give to someone who in listening listening to our conversation and what we are sharing, who says, I want to become more aware of being a proactivist, an ally to the disability community. What what advice would you give to them as to where they should start? I, I would really recommend that they purposefully structure their journey and that that starts by creating opportunity to start listening to persons with disabilities by contacting organizations and saying I would like to just become part of your environment not to bring a service not to help not to do anything but simply to learn from being able to ask questions around lived experience to be able to understand better and I'm willing to pay for that because I'm empowering myself and I think that is it's that mind shift from I'm not doing it out of the goodness of my heart I'm doing it actually to learn and I must pay for that not a free university um, so literally contacting an organization of blind persons an organization of deaf persons Organizations of persons with physical disabilities, organizations of autistic people, mums of autistic children, um, of children with intellectual disabilities, adults with intellectual disabilities. And simply by saying to them, I'm willing to pay for eight visits of conversation, of people willing to share with me, not false, voluntary, and I'm willing to make a payment towards that. Because ultimately, I will be coming out of this process much, much better equipped to then plan the rest of my inclusion journey, my allyship, um, because I would have heard it. And the questions I would be asking would be related to why I'm interested. What can I learn from people's lived experiences? Once you've structured that process, your life will never be the same. It's, it's I always say to people, disability is a joy ride. It has, it's like a big dipper. 
it has its absolute highs and it has its absolute devastating lows. When you realize, the, when you sit in that pain of persons with disability, I've had to do it in the last week um, on a WhatsApp group of just where people share the exhaustion of ableism. Um, and, and, and there's nothing you can do except to just sit with them in, in that space. And sometimes that is, uh, that is allyship. It's just being willing to feel and endure and process that pain um, and exhaustion of, of, of ableism. And that's so that would be, that would be my advice. Create the opportunity to go and listen and pay for it. Thank you. That's very, very valuable advice that you're getting there. Another aspect of the work that you're doing that you and I have been chatting about on social media is about social media inclusion and accessibility. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has become a real fascination of mine, how not just how inaccessible many social media posts are with images that aren't described or videos without captions and, and, and that kind of unthinking exclusion. But especially for me, how often we as members of the disability community are also not making our posts inclusive because they may not be, we, we may not be thinking or considering the needs of persons with different disabilities from those of the organization mm -hmm. that represents mm -hmm. And it, it's something that for me has been such an interesting observation to watch. But why do you think that it's important to make our social media posts successes? I know that sounds like a really silly question to ask. But no, no, no. Let's just unpack you know, it. I, I think for me it's really around what happens if you don't. That sometimes speaks more to people. So if my if my post is not accessible, the person that wants to read it and can't, how do I make them feel? To go back to Maya Angelou's wisdom, it's not about what you say, not about what you do, much more about how you make a person feel that matters. So I'm going through social media posts, and here's something I want to see because I admire the person, because everybody is raving about the post, and I have no idea what this post is about because I cannot access it. How does that make me feel? How does this marginalize me in conversations when the conversation is about that post? So I move from being able to be a, a, a conversant in that, in that space to please tell me what is it about? Oh, sorry, I can't read it. What is it? Can you see the shift? In conversation, so we move to reasonable accommodation support. The shift instead of me being able to contribute my opinion on what is being said, and I think for me, for me that's the crux. It's about 
if I don't forget about it makes business sense and you know you can sell to more people and it, we've been saying that for how long it doesn't get traction for me it is about if I post something and somebody is not going to be able to read it who wanted to read it what is the message I give them about they matter or they don't matter about marginalizing them even further in a conversation that might be interesting, important to them, um, and 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 contributing to internalized ableism. For me, it's really around that. Um, and and it, it's not just on social media. For me, it's been a sort of a journey of how many of the documents I pr produce mm -hmm. are accessible. And I was shocked at my Microsoft Accessibility checkers, uh, vert, vert, um, opinions of my documents. Um, so it's been a con conscious journey of how do I improve on it. And I know there's always room for improvement, not just because it's skills that you have to learn, but ultimately, um, it's, it's, it's disability is an evolving concept and it means that it changes all the time. So there's, there's always new things. Technology changes all the time. So there's constantly new things. So, yes, disability organizations and disability rights activists of a single impairment sort of focus are the worst culprits when it comes to them only catering for their constituency and cutting everybody out. Until the person in the wheelchair that's always been blogging inaccessible posts suddenly become blind or develop low vision. And suddenly it becomes important to them, moves into their space. Um, and I just think it's constantly calling people out and there's different ways of doing that um, without embarrassing. That should never be the purpose because if we, and it's one of the things I've learned in coaching, if we advocate through aggression, then we stimulate the part of the brain that has the flight fight like a freeze reaction, which doesn't change anything. We've got to do it in such a way that says that they say, ouch, that hurt. Let me do something about it. Um, but they wouldn't know if they're not pulled out. So it's about how do we pull them out? And and I think as activists, our tools to do that really lack um, at the best of times. Yeah, one of the examples of this type of inclusion that, that I've seen, which I think is a very positive example, is of a Facebook group that I'm part of. Um, it's a fairly big group based around books and reading. And one of the rules mm -hmm. they've instituted is if you paste a, a, a Facebook post about a book or an image of a cover of a book, please include the title and author of the book clearly so that someone reading it with a screen reader is able to access it. It's mm -hmm. one of the rules of the group. And it's mm -hmm. actually become part of the culture of the book that if someone posts without making it explicit what the title is, the author, or the, the cover, someone will always go back and say, please tell us what the book is. Mm -hmm. Please tell mm -hmm. us who the author is. And yes, there's, there are several visually impaired people on that community, but not many. And it's not always 
those of us who are visually impaired who are picking up and calling people out. And yeah. I find that is so positive. Because, because you create a, a new culture. Yes, you create a new culture. Inclusion. Yeah. It also means that people with a low bandwidth, who the picture doesn't show up for, still has access to the information. Um, and that's sometimes the easy way of starting to get people into allyship, but they start using it almost as a, a credit for themselves. And that's what I've got against saying to people, the whole of society benefits. is the aspect of that that's about self-serving. Um, but absolutely, it's about creating a culture of saying, we will not accept your post if it's not acceptable. We in a, in a company, you cannot send a document out if you have not run it through the accessibility checker. Accessibility checker is not foolproof, but the conscious effort starts creating a culture of constantly learning, and it's about taking that first step. Um, you know, so I just don't do a PowerPoint if I've not run it through the checker. And in the beginning, it's very frustrating because everything is inaccessible, and then I learn. I now do PowerPoints exactly at the same time as before and accessible because I've learned how to do it. Um, but I had to force myself as an ally that's accountable to go on that journey of learning. And I suppose you've given an answer to this already, but how do people start if they go suddenly going, oh, how do I make my documents, my online presence? Anything that I'm thinking about, how do I make it more accessible? I know the information is available, but it can be overwhelming. What yeah. advice would you have for where they should start? The first thing that you should start with is, again, what I said earlier on. You go and find the disability rights activists, the accessibility activists on your social media platform, and you befriend them. You like them, you follow them, because they post about, they post about how to do it. Every single day. And by bringing them into your space, you start learning. So that's the first thing. Is you actually learn from them. And that's why you follow them. The second thing is you start sharing what they've done. You ask them, if, if depending on what it is, you check before you even post. This, the last thing is for me, I think it's you have to commit. You have to commit to becoming part of the group that doesn't discriminate rather than being part of the group that uh, makes excuses for discriminating. So you literally, you've got two bags. The one is the bag that says, I discriminate. Whether intentional, whether unintentional, doesn't matter. I discriminate because I am not trying. I discriminate because I'm not learning. I'm discriminating because I'm trying to save myself time. So it's, it's, the first thing is the consciousness that you have to have to say, no, I want to be and I will be in the bag that says I do not discriminate. I do not discriminate because I try, because I learn, because I, I go to chat GPT and I say to chat GPT, please tell me what can I do to make my social media post disability accessible. My gosh, it tells you it all. We can find Husbands and wives and houses and cars and shopping online. We can also find the information online. It's not very difficult. And I think it's about committing, being conscious, committing, and then moving yourself out of the bag that says, I discriminate 
intentionally or unintentionally irrelevant to a bag that says, I do not discriminate. And, and for me, fundamentally, that's your journey. Thank you. That's very useful advice on, on how we can, as individual people, start taking movements in the right direction. I really appreciate that. There's videos on YouTube that shows you how to do alt text, that do, shows you how to do closed captions, that shows you how to do color contrasting. Um, it's all packaged. It's all available. It's us being willing to actually wanting to access that. So very true. Lydia, if people would like to reach out or find out more about you and the work that you're doing, where can they find you? I think the easiest is to just type into Google or in, onto any of the social media platforms, Disability Mojo Coach, it will come up. My name should also bring it up, but um, most of my sort of my website is disabilitymojocoach.co.za. My Facebook um, thing is at, uh, Facebook at Disability Mojo Coach and LinkedIn. So I'm on all the social media platforms. Um, I have a link tree um, thing that puts it all down. Um, but I think for me, that's the easiest, is Disability Mojo Coach. And if you're not sure how to start the journey, if you're not um, sure what is your niche within the disability inclusion space, um, if you feel that you have internalized some of the crap that society throws at you, please, you know, give me a call. All my my discovery calls, the first one is free of charge just to explore. And often it's just about network, um, referring you, um, putting you in touch with somebody um, or a resource. Um, so it's not necessarily uh, paid programs or anything. But Disability Mojo Coach is the easiest to get hold of me. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we will put those links into the show notes as well. But as a final question, our conversation has ranged over lots of different topics, which has been fantastic, and I appreciate that. What does the future hold for you? Um, when I left government in 2020, I said it's starting to wind down my professional career into walking the beach, and I'm lucky enough that we have cows on our beach, um, and just living a life of, you know, sort of quiet solitude. Um, I think I was very tired at the time, and that's why that was my resolve. So that is still in the picture. But I think for me, really what I would like to, to do is, and, and this is what I am doing at the moment, is finding effective ways of imparting some of my knowledge and experiences um, to young people with disabilities, um, not for them to continue my work, but hopefully that something in that and those conversations triggers ideas and things in them that they can make their own and that they can just accelerate the pace in which they develop their careers and, and their journeys. It's so much easier now with all the media available. So, so that's the one aspect is how do I effectively impart um, through conversations um, with um, this uh, young young people at, at, in particular? And then the other aspect is I promised myself I need to write a book um, and tell the story of the people who impacted my life through my eyes. 
because I think my journey is a million stories of individuals across Africa and 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 beyond Africa, um, from the most rural villages to the metropolitan cities. Um, it's their stories um, and how that impacted my journey. So, so I need to get that book done. That's what the future holds for me. Yeah, we, we wish you success with both of those initiatives. They both sound really exciting. I look forward to reading your book when it comes out. Thank you, my dear. Much appreciated. And thank you for this opportunity to to go back and think about my journey. Um, it was interesting, just some of the sort of things that popped out for me um, just in preparing for the conversation. So thank you so much. And I hope it means something for somebody somewhere. Um, but that's that's all that's important. Well, I thank you for sharing and being willing to share those your insights and your thoughts with us. And just as a reminder, a simple way that you as a listener can become an ally and help with this inclusion conversation is simply to share this podcast to your community so that others can learn some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that exist within the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and disability. Lydia, thank you once again. It was really wonderful to chat to you today. Thank you, Lois. Take care. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We would love to connect with you. So find Lois at loisstrachen.com or Facebook, Lois Strachan Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachan using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Gyasi. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently.